Welcome to this episode of the Here and Now podcast. My name is Dave Mons and my aim is to share big ideas from science and the humanities to get you thinking and to help you make sense of the world. Those who know me well will agree, there always seems to be something that grinds my gears. Perhaps I'm a natural born complainer, a cynic or both. But while that is probably true, I tend to think that my complaints are rational ones. I notice the seeming injustices in life and for better or worse, they trouble me. Not the ones that can't be helped, like the weather or an unlucky breakdown or missing out on an opportunity, because that's just the way it goes sometimes. No, what bothers me most are the things that are the result of a poor design or poor service or, my favourite, intellectual laziness. Now before I go too far off the reservation, I'll reassure you this episode is not intended to be a rant, although I have contemplated starting a podcast called Things That Grind My Gears. But the topic for today actually has a positive message but like many stories, it begins with conflict. The thing that bugs me is what I call the always-or-never fallacy. It's the way people sometimes say things like, it's always such-and-such, or it's never such-and-such. These terms are conclusive, they're closed-loop, the end of the line, the binary, polar, unwavering. Whenever we go to the lake, it's always raining, or every time I go to get some double-cherry chewy twisters from the store, there are never any there. These are trivial examples, so why does it annoy me? It's because it's never true. It's almost never true. Has it really always been raining at the lake? And how do you know what a double cherry chewy twister is if there's never one at the store? Why did I come up with that example? Sure, we all use hyperbole and exaggerate to make our point. We are melodramatic and expressive. Things are always or never how we want them to be. But it's not true. It's not even close to true. Part of the reason we think it is true, though, and why we express ourselves in this way, is that it feels true. We remember those things that are most salient to us. We don't really notice when things go to plan, when they work out, and we are satisfied. We just expect things will be the way that we want them to be. But if they aren't, then things suddenly go to an extreme, and we employ hyperbole. Things are always not how we want them, and never how we want them to be, especially when it comes to other people. Joey always embarrasses me at parties. Susie never has anything nice to say. From a linguistic perspective, using hyperbole statements like always or never actually serve a useful purpose. They emphasise the contrast between an expected outcome and an actual outcome. For instance, I went to the movies last night and I expected it to be very quiet, but it was absolutely packed. The line to get in must have been at least a mile long. In this example, the hyperbole emphasised the contrast between what I expected and how different the reality actually was. The line was a mile long. Was it though? When we employ words like always or never to describe a situation, we are doing the same thing. We are highlighting the contrast between what we wanted or expected and what happened, according to us. This is a ubiquitous behaviour in English language and others, but it is not necessarily a universal. There is a cultural component to it, as there is for virtually all human behaviours. So now that we've settled the linguistic psychology of why we use hyperbole like this, let's move on to the consequences. It seems that I'm taking my always or never gripe too seriously, too literally. We know we don't really mean it, it's just a figure of speech, it's hardly worth getting wrapped around the axle about. For trivial matters like this, who cares? 
The trouble is, from my perspective, we don't just do this with trivial matters, we do it with big things as well. It becomes a train we can get on board to Always Town or Neversville, and we use it to fortify our own social circle against those in other social circles. It's in-group versus out-group. It's one of the tools of fundamental attribution bias, where good things are always because of our actions, and bad things are always someone or something else's fault. This type of thinking also extends beyond our private social circles to our institutions. Every form we fill out, every system we subscribe to to carry out some life task from working with the healthcare provider or education system to the motor vehicle department, all of these different things that we have to interact with have two possible extremes that you can be in. Always or never. The vast grey area between is, for the most part, an uninhabited wasteland. Well, actually, it's not uninhabited at all, and that is the problem. There's one way to be part of any system. The always way. Or you can never be part of the system. If you've ever seen the classic UK comedy show Little Britain, you'll know what I mean when I say computer says no. The skit is based on the idea that when you arrive at some government department somewhere, or maybe it's the travel agent, when you provide your details, the customer service person enters them into the computer, and lo and behold, computer says no. There's no room for your specific case. A bit of common sense, a pragmatic solution, because we must either be all the same or we are not allowed access. I'm sure you can sympathise with me. Perhaps you even agree. But you might also be thinking, well, there has to be a system. We can't tailor the world's systems to every single person's unique circumstances. That's not a system. It's anarchy. An egocentric world where everyone comes first is just not possible because, as the cliche goes, you can't please all of the people all of the time. And you'd be right about that. Maybe there is a time when always is a true statement. I've spent a bit of time recently thinking and talking about the social contract and the idea that we must accept a certain level of state imposition on our freedom, our personal freedom, in exchange for certain protections and services. So even if the always or never fallacy might be intellectually lazy in conversation and the way we think about ourselves in the world, it is crucially important for the systems of state and commerce to function. There has to be a law, a standard, a process, a way things are that reflects most of the people most of the time. So the question is, how true is that statement? Do the systems and conventions that surround so many facets of our daily lives actually cater for most of us most of the time? Or have we become so used to the imposition of these systems that we've learned to adapt and fit the mould because it's always or never rather than most of the time and we don't want to be on the never side of the equation because we can't afford to be. And here is the conflict. On the one hand, we must accept certain compromises in order for the systems that govern our lives to function. This is called society, the collective where no one person stands above the rest. We're all in it together, so we must accept our part as one small piece of a larger whole for the greater good, for the good of everyone. Well, almost everyone, except whoever is on the never side of the equation, or in that vast empty grey space in between where many, if not all of us, actually reside. And that's the other hand. We are all individuals. We are at once both one piece of a whole defined by that whole, but also one unique piece where the whole is irrelevant. We're the product of a long, messy genetic history of a recent culture and a longer, more expansive one. We are evolving socially throughout our lives. We have tastes and proclivities and motivations that may be as different from each other as two people could possibly get. Yet somehow, we must all be considered together in order for the system to function. 
We can't fit into an always or never slot because we are always different and never the same. But society is like a heuristic, a simplification of complexity, which bundles us all up into one seemingly homogenous group, which should behave in a certain predictable and definable way. Our social psychology makes it that way, as we've found through our group behaviour, our biases and our susceptibility to influence. The only thing that hurts more than losing individuality is being in the never group. We just want to belong. Much of the time, this works out okay, because for the most part, we are similar enough within a culture at least, so we can make certain generalisations. For example, until quite recently, every form that had a gender question had only two options for the answer. But that's kind of the point. Now there are more than two. I'm not going to debate issues of gender, simply to say that if someone identifies in a certain way, that it's actually none of anyone else's business. But if that person makes contact with a system, which inevitably they will have to eventually, then we have a problem. The always or never system does not accommodate individual differences beyond certain predetermined distinctions which consider only categories that most people fall into, or it simply hasn't adapted to change with society. So is this a failure of systems to adapt quickly enough? Most definitely, but it doesn't end there. The system was not designed with any flexibility in the first place, and so it's inevitable that it would always fail to capture edge cases. Now, when thinking of something like gender, we might put that down to a more recent phenomenon led by a more open and accepting society. But we differ in far more ways than just that, and we always have. Indeed, much of life's course is determined by arbitrary distinctions that come down to how the system was configured in the first place. Just remember back at school, everyone line up over here, all of the ones over here, all the twos over there. One, two, one, two, one, two. The seemingly innocuous system we've probably all experienced at some point in our youth may have led to you being put into a group which stifled your latent talents or enhanced them. Of course, life is full of such minor and seemingly insignificant fluctuations which can change entire histories. That is the way it is, and it always will be. We can't eliminate chance from the situation. However, if we live in a world of our design, which places always or never barriers on our choices, on our fate, then it is not chance. It is social engineering. And who wants to live in a world where your fate is determined not by who you are as an individual, plus all the luck, good and bad, that rains down from the universe, but from a system which doesn't care about you, a system that doesn't even know you? Okay, we seem to have strayed off track, and I haven't even mentioned the word that forms the title of this episode, although you're probably getting the gist. This episode is basically all introduction. But first, here's an example which lies at the heart of the point I've been trying to get at, and why always or never thinking grinds my gears. Just over 20 years ago, two passenger jets were flown into the World Trade Center in Manhattan, New York. Two more aircraft were lost in Pennsylvania and the Pentagon, and easily the most calamitous event in recent modern history. That act of terror and violence changed the world, and its effects continue to reverberate in our collective consciousness. The lives of 2,980 innocent people were cut short that day. In the immediate aftermath, the United States government established a compensation fund for victims of the tragedy. Soon after, New York lawyer Kenneth Feinberg was appointed as special master of the fund. The special master was a position given full discretion to allocate funds to claimants with no upper limit, an unprecedented policy. Feinberg explains his role in his book What Is Life Worth? The Unprecedented Effort to Compensate the Victims of 9-11. Quote, 
The statute creating the fund was deceptively simple in its goals and aspirations, but hideously complex in its implementation. Every line of the new law raised difficult questions. Who was eligible to receive compensation? How much money should be awarded? What rationale should govern the awards? There were few guidelines spelled out in the law, and history offered little help. I looked in vain for precedent. I even turned to the Bible and other books of religious learning, hoping to find a roadmap, possibly a pertinent biblical allegory that would point the way. Not so. Rabbis and priests expressed sympathy and occasionally promised me guidance. No definitive answers were forthcoming. End quote. Feinberg was selected as special master because he had worked on several major cases involving public culpability in the past, the Agent Orange fiasco from the Vietnam War, managing asbestos claims, and many others. Feinberg had earned a reputation as the go-to mediator for challenging cases, able to objectively analyse the facts and put together precise formulae that determined who should get what and why. Feinberg was indeed the perfect person for the job in the wake of 9-11. The problem was the incident was still raw in the American consciousness, most especially for those who had suffered directly as a result. It always will be. Emotions were high, anger was even higher, and to begin to think about the value of a life when so many were tragically stolen away through that act of terror was more than most could handle. It was an unenviable task which Feinberg may have been prepared for on paper, but in reality it would be far more difficult than he realised. Coming face to face with the families of victims of the tragedy made it personal and confronting. Feinberg writes, quote, The statute creating the 9-11 fund was an attempt to do the impossible, to provide fair repayment for the sudden loss of a loved one and some degree of justice for that loss. But in such a case, what is fair? What is just? How can life be measured in dollars and cents? Should such a calculus even be attempted, especially in a democracy founded on belief in the dignity and respect due every individual? These are questions with no simple answers. End quote. But as much as Feinberg's formula was the only way to arbitrate such loss, there were inevitable edge cases. The 11 undocumented workers who were killed, whose families were reluctant to come forward out of fear of being sent out of the country. The surviving partners of gay couples in states which did not recognise such an arrangement, or the rifts between estranged families where no will existed. Alongside the grief these families and the survivors were working their way through were difficult decisions that needed to be made, a figuring of the value of life. And as much as Feinberg's formula provided that figure, he realised that the only way to truly establish the value of each life was to consider everyone individually. He writes, quote, As the applications poured in and the families lined up at my office door, I learned more and more about the uncertainty that came with my job. At the outset, I envisaged what I called a common law of awards that would help applicants understand the size of awards and the objective factors I relied on in reaching my decisions. Cold reality, the infinite variations of the human condition, made this excruciatingly difficult. I tried to treat similar claims alike. But I soon learned that there were very few truly similar claims. A minor distinction here, an additional fact there, meant that the final calculations varied dramatically from claim to claim. And for good reason. The victims were all different. Their achievements, hopes, aspirations and goals added up to 5,000 different lives. Therefore, I had to issue 5,000 different awards. There was no way around it. End quote. What was important here was context. Each case needed to be considered on its own merits. Each situation appraised, evaluated, and then a determination could be made. How did the formula recognise the loss of a newlywed, or the many pregnant wives and partners whose unborn children would never know their fathers? 
there were over 60 of these cases, or the family of the Wall Street executive who earned millions a year. Yes, difficult decisions needed to be made, lines needed to be drawn. The way in which a victim died was not taken into account, whether they were a passenger on one of the aircraft, aware of their impending death, or a firefighter sent to rescue those trapped in the towers. Each life of life was considered equally, equally tragic. What determined the value of the compensation was personal circumstances beyond what happened on that terrible day. I won't go into any more details, and I apologise if it appears that I've trivialised this in the course of the episode. Certainly not my intention. The legacy of 9-11 is still felt around the world today, not just in America. If you're interested, I really recommend having a read of Feinberg's book. There's a Netflix film titled Worth, which is also based on the story, and I highly recommend giving it a watch. The reason I cited this example is because it resonated with me when I was thinking about the always or never fallacy and how it applies in our lives. We are all different and we must all be considered differently. And this was perhaps never more apparent than in the case of the 9-11 Victim Compensation Fund. So let me conclude with the point of this episode, the word which forms the title that sums up most of what I've been trying to convey here. Nuance. Nuance is a noun or a verb. It's meaning a subtle difference in or shade of meaning, expression or sound. And that is every single life, subtly different from one another. Different in meaning, different in expression, different in the sound we cast upon the world. Many of our social problems and the shameful legacies of oppression and cruelty stem from failing to recognise this most fundamental aspect of our humanity, our nuance. Nuance of character, of context and of lived experience. We are left then as individuals within a collective society of many, each with competing interests. We can either be recognised as a unique, autonomous individual, or as just one of the many within an overarching system. The lived reality of this conflict has played out in all human lives and continues to play out in each and every one of our lives today. When we think in terms of always or never, we fail to recognise the nuance inherent to every life. And if we design systems which also fail to acknowledge that nuance, then we corrode away the fine details of our humanity. So if there is a takeaway message from this episode, it is this. Our lives are a lot about conforming, about foregoing our differences for the sake of fitting the mould that society has created to keep us as homogenous as possible. Because the reality of being human is messy and complicated. But we must remind ourselves that it is those differences that make us unique. It is the nuance that gives life its character and its shape. When we forsake that uniqueness, when we group others without recognising the nuance of their character, we overlook the very thing which makes us human. This sounds overly proverbial. So how does recognising nuance work in practice? Well, philosophers have been grappling with this question for centuries, and we'll begin to explore it in the next episode as we approach the political philosophy of libertarianism. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Here and Now podcast. You can find us on Facebook at the Here and Now podcast or Twitter at Here Now podcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe to keep up to date with all of the latest episodes. And if you want to support the podcast, you can find us on Patreon or leave a review at the Apple Podcasts app. You can reach out to me via the pages or email the here and now at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.